I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to another episode of Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with critics, reviews and criticism. I'm Adam Brooks and my guest this week is... Simran Hans. Before we get into a little more detail about Simran, um, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do drop us a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference. It boosts us up the charts, puts us in front of more people, and uh, we'd love to gather as many listeners as possible. Uh, similarly, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, it's at ReadsLikeAFour, or if you want to get in touch for any reason, ReadsLikeAFour at gmail.com. Anyway, let's hear a little bit more about Simran's involvement in reviews and criticism. I'm a writer um, and reluctantly a film critic for The Observer, um, but I, I write for a bunch of other places, including um, Sight and Sound magazine, Variety, Dazed, The Fader, New Statesman. Um, there are others that I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, anywhere that will take me, really. And I write mostly about film, but also music, um, interviews, profiles, essays. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. Without further ado, let's get on with it. This is Reads Like a Four with Simran Hands. In film, do you believe that there are always great new films in every genre at all times and that it's just about what writers or the industry choose to pay attention to? Or is it cyclical where there are genres of film that are in a funk or that are particularly exciting um, at any given moment? That's quite a good question. I think there's always interesting stuff happening and you have to be tuned into it. Um, I don't think... I think to, to call it cyclical is is maybe not quite the right way of describing it because the way we talk about films that are interesting is cyclical, right? But maybe not the films themselves. So if you think about award season as a kind of burst of supposedly interesting high-profile films, the summer blockbuster, um, it's kind of seasonal and you can track it in that way. But um, a lot of critics, myself included, are kind of thinking about films in more of a festival calendar rather than a release date calendar. So, um, you know, those timelines don't necessarily match up. So, yeah, there's, there's always new stuff coming out and there's always there's always new stuff that's interesting as well. Mm -hmm. I guess I was I was kind of curious because there's parallels you can draw to music. I remember um, 
uh, a lot of chat from people that decided playlists and things at Radio One used to be that they would say, well, you know, guitar music is currently not, you know, there's th- th- there's a dearth of good guitar music and, and that's why we're concentrating on pop and so on. And I, yeah, I just wondered kind of to what extent it's the same with film if people are, people say, well, you know, at the moment the horror scene is particularly exciting or drama is particularly exciting when in fact that's kind of a construct. That's just what they've chosen to, to, to focus on. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could talk about um, certain genres having a cultural moment, maybe. Um, So I guess if there are lots of similar films coming out at a time, it can be useful or interesting to kind of discuss them in a in a sort of synthesized way like that. But I don't think that relates to the films themselves. I think it's just more about how we choose to talk about them, if that makes sense does yes um the observer is probably uh where most people are, are familiar with your writing and I, it, it's a place that i always go for for a lot of my film criticism partly because it seems that that as a newspaper it makes some bold choices in what it gives lead review to or, or chooses not to cover but i wondered where you think that the limit of that lies presumably a line is drawn before you get to say giving a five minute student film the lead review and and are, <laughs> are there also some terrible films that are just too big f- for a newspaper like the observer to ignore yeah so it's kind of interesting how it's decided so um I am just one member of of a team of people so it's me Wendy Eyed, Guy Lodge who's on home releases and then um the UK's celebrity critic and my work dad Mark Hermode and so Mark uh does the the lead film every week and, and we all have a discussion about what he might lead on what might be the most interesting film, maybe what he likes the most. And, you know, we now we've gone to tabloid as well, the format's slightly different. So there's less literal page space to discuss things. So before, when I first started, we might be covering up to seven films a week. And now it's four, um, just because of, of space limitations. But obviously more than four films come out every week. So we have to have a discussion about what will be covered. And uh, my editors are, are very good at kind of letting me and my colleagues kind of decide what we think we should be giving the column inches to. Um, in terms of like, are there things that are too high profile to ignore? Yeah. So like we couldn't not write about something like the Avengers Infinity War that has to be covered because it's part of a wider cultural conversation. Um, but at the same time, just because that's the biggest film coming out um, in any given week doesn't mean that that's the one that will get the the lead review. It really depends on kind of how all of us are feeling on a week to week basis. Mm-hmm. And you say that it's the 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 amount of films that you can cover have got been reduced from seven to four. Are there sort of are there characteristics? To, is there a type of film that would have been included in the seven but now isn't included in the four, or is it just kind of potluck week to week? Um. I guess like so the 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 big films um that can't be ignored so you're sort of yeah Avengers Ready Player Ones that kind of thing those will will sort of have to be made space for um and then I usually try to include a documentary every week because I think it's um an important interesting art form so I like to make sure that we usually have one sometimes it's not possible but um usually usually trying to include one of those and then I guess it's like you know it's whatever you see that week that is possibly the most interesting to write about or that you want to direct people towards I don't think that um 
I think variety is important as well. We, you know, it's not useful to have like four reviews of four American comedies. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really a case by case sort of thing. I don't know if there is a, a logic as much as an intuition of like what might be interesting to write about or to read about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Observer obviously doesn't doesn't give films a a, a, hard, a hard mark or a numerical score, but I know that you've obviously written for other places like Little White Lies that has devised its own system. Do you think uh, that giving a film a mark or a score uh, has any makes any difference to the review itself? Well, it's interesting because for The Observer, we do have to include stars. So in the paper, in the physical print, they don't um, they don't have star ratings. I but see. when the um, copy gets uploaded onto the Guardian website where, you know, the Observer sits on the same uh, same website, we also have to include stars. So um, begrudgingly, I have to have to file my reviews with, with stars every week, um, which I don't love because I think they're pretty useless for anyone except the marketing team of a film and uh, not really an indication of whether something's good or not. I, I think I've written many three-star reviews that are actually quite critical. I might have given something two stars, but being kind of generous. Um, so I think you have to lead by the writing and then you just decide the stars after maybe. Um, yeah. I guess as well, it does create a bit of dissonance in that sometimes you do have occasions, don't you, where both The Observer and The Guardians review the film. And so there's obviously there's a distinction of voice between the two and, and sometimes the, you know, the scores aren't the same or the reviews, you know, are not coming from the same place. For sure. I mean, I remember the first official week that I um, had a column and I'd reviewed the film, uh, the Warren Beatty film rules don't apply. And I'd given it four stars because it's a weird movie. It's super weird and it's kind of fun and a bit of a mess, but um, I had a good time with it. And uh, Peter Bradshaw who's the Guardian's lead film critic, had given it, I think, one star and quite like a savage pan. And uh, it was interesting reading the comments uh, of people saying, you know, like, oh, Guardian's given it one star and now they're giving it four stars. What is this madness? But um, so I think a lot of people online, they don't they read them and they don't realize it's two separate uh, or editorially separate publications. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think is currently missing or in short supply in film criticism and what is there far too much of? Oh, where to begin? Hmm. Um, I guess what's missing is rigor. I think, uh, a lot of reviews are kind of people writing about something, having made like a very quick judgment, um, about whether they think a film is good or bad or worthwhile or not worthwhile and kind of um, being the fastest to kind of get their take and get their kind of correct take out in the world. Um, and I think what we really need is just more engagement with with the work itself. Um, so that would be, I think, my, my main problem with it. Because when I talk to students about students who want to be critics and, and students who ask me about um, writing and, and particularly about writing reviews, I always say that you should be trying to evaluate a film on the basis of what it's doing and whether it's doing it well. So is this film succeeding at what it's trying to do or, um, or is it failing? 
and why. That's what's interesting, not is this a good movie or is this a bad movie? I mean, like maybe that's enough if you're talking about it with your friends, but if you're actually trying to engage with the work, then I think you just need to um, ask a slightly different set of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about upfront screenings as well. I was always told it was it was received wisdom that if, if a big film isn't screened upfront for critics, it's because it's terrible. Um, is, <laughs> is that still the case? Or does the way films are being released now, kind of surprise released on Netflix and, and, and on demand and in cinema simultaneously, does that mean that it's not such a clear distinction? C- can you can you no longer rely on the idea that if you're, if you're not being shown it, it's because it's probably bad? I think... Um that is still absolutely true. Um, often with films that are released day and date, they will still press screen it. Um, so if it's if it's released on on VOD and in cinemas at the same time, you, you will usually get a chance for critics to see it because that's how people hear about these kind of uh, movies that might otherwise be buried um, on a Netflix server is if they're being released in the cinema at the time, then it uh, benefits from any kind of critical buzz or noise about it. Um, but yeah, I think if, if a studio is refusing to screen a film, especially if it's a high profile studio or a studio that's like quite big, then it's usually a bad sign for the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, to be honest, like it doesn't really matter. Like uh, a big movie from Fox or Sony is not going to tank because it gets some bad reviews. So I don't really understand like why the reticence um, it, it does seem like the ones that don't aren't screened up front, yeah, are are the are the more critic proof films, right? Like it's you know it's kind of, I I mean I don't know if these films were screened pre- prior to release or not, but I imagine things like Battleship and you know stuff that's based on big gaming franchises and things are not necessarily going to be dented if they were. I guess it, in that case, if they if they know it's going to get bad reviews and they know it doesn't matter, maybe is it just a, is it a cost saving thing? I don't I don't really understand. I hadn't thought about it like that. I mean, maybe maybe that is the case. One memorable example of something that didn't get press screened um, that I ended up reviewing anyway, and actually I can't really do this anymore because our deadlines have changed now that we've um, gone to tabloid. But last year, um, it was we closed a bit later on in the week because um, the Observer is obviously a Sunday paper. So I could sometimes, if something wasn't screened, see it on a Friday morning and file by Friday lunchtime uh-huh. and they could still get it in the paper. But um, it's not quite as flexible now. But the example that I'm thinking of is a, a terrible movie called Rough Night, um, which is about a sort of hen party gone wrong. Um, and it's it's just abysmal. And I remember they didn't press screen it. And Mark Kermode and I went out to Romford in Essex uh, to see it at like nine in the morning at a view cinema. Um, and we were the only people in there. What and a beautiful it, picture you're painting. Oh, yeah. We had our like terrible coffee. Um, it was just like a grim place to be so early in the morning and there was no one else there. And uh, it was terrible. So they, I guess, you know, it it. it proved right your theory that they didn't screen it because it was bad Mm -hmm. i mean the other thing that kind of perplexes me and i'm not expecting you to definitely have the the definitive answer to this but you will know more about it than i do how is it that a film with so many people involved like the the sheer kind of weight behind a lot of these bigger films how is it that they get to the point where that film is nearly released and everybody involved knows it's not good enough to show to the press um that's an awful lot I of mean, people to let something <laughs> terrible happen, isn't it? 
I guess so, but but terrible is is relative. Um, in a in a studio mogul's mind, terrible could still make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess that's usually the perspective that a lot of people are operating from. I think um, damage control only really comes into play when you know there's a, there's a more external scandal rather than the movie just being a bit shit. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, I wondered, obviously, as well as um, as well as reviewing film in, in print, you're also involved in programming and researching, and have been on on many many panels about it. I wondered, does any of that affect your enjoyment of it? Um, uh, knowing more about the the kind of the process of, of of filmmaking and extra facets of marketing and so on that you're privy to, does that add an extra layer of enjoyment, or does it make it harder to enjoy a film on its merits? Um, I don't, I don't think it makes it less enjoyable um you know people might be surprised to hear that I actually still go to the movies I still go to the cinema I don't tend to see new release stuff very often unless I've missed it and I really am desperate to see it um but I'm lucky to live in London in a city where there's a really thriving um rep cinema scene so lots of old movies um play all the time the BFI the Prince Charles Regent Street Cinema Close Up like they're just countless spots and um programming collectives that are putting on weird interesting old underseen things so I still still kind of enjoy that element of discovery um and I guess it's just like anything that you you work in that you if you work in an area that you love like obviously you're always at risk of oversaturation but I think if if I ever just feel like I'm watching too many movies I'll just maybe in my downtime um, read more or sort of like go to gigs more or, or, or kind of try and get a bit of equilibrium back but it doesn't doesn't turn me off it no not at all okay cool I mean I guess the reason I ask is I, I, I previously worked in, in recorded music and at record labels and things and there are probably a handful of records I'd have to say that are really beautiful records but I don't enjoy them anymore because when I hear them I hear in them the stress involved in 
in working with them and on them and so i was just curious whether it translates to film as well i suppose i suppose you're not dwelling on any one specific film long enough for it to kind of be tainted no not really i mean like the only thing like that that i can kind of think of off the top of my head is um when I was programming with Bechdel's Hesfest, which is um, a feminist film collective that I, I worked with for sort of the best part of three years. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not working with them anymore, but they're still doing really interesting, um, really good stuff. We um, were involved with this film by Gina Prince-Bythewood called Beyond the Lights. And um, we screened it and then we kind of toured it as well. So I've seen that film quite a lot. I don't need to see it again for a bit. Mm-hmm. um but but really it's it's quite rare that um it'd be something like that i think that's more of the exception rather than the rule mm-hmm. oh, that's good to know um your site mentions that that one of the things you love about film is discussing how race gender and popular culture intersect um is it something that's reflected in the films that you choose to review where you have a choice uh, the actual content of your writing who you choose to write about them for or, or a combination of all of those things i mean it's all of them really Um, A lot of the time, especially these days, um, I'm assigned stuff rather than pitching it, um, which is is fine. Um, And I think it's good that I'm now in a place where I'm assigned a greater range of things, um, because just because I'm a brown woman doesn't mean that I only have to write about brown women things. Um, But also, I guess having that lived experience and having that perspective means that I may be coming at the films from a slightly different vantage point. Um, Although I don't think it's productive to only look at movies and art through identity politics. I think that's only one part of it. Um, That can't be the only way in which we evaluate things. But um, it does definitely create a tension that's maybe interesting to write about. Um, And in, in terms of who it's for, not really. I think that a lot of the outlets that I work with are pretty mainstream. I'm not doing too much that's sort of specifically like feminist focused. Um, and uh, in terms of the films themselves, I like to highlight things that I think are doing good work, but um, I also, like, my taste is not limited to things that are politically right on, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, of course. And I presume as well, you know, that, that there are also <laughs> films who who could be criticised for only really attempting to make one political point or a point that is specific to race or gender and, and, and haven't tried to kind of transcend that and make, you know, interesting cinema beyond it. Yeah, and I think that's a massive problem with documentary, which is an area that I write about quite a lot. I think um, like message-based stuff is not that interesting. I don't mind if a film has a message or an agenda, that's fair enough. But if that's its only kind of imperative and it's not being a, a film first, then obviously I'm going to respond to it less. Yeah, and presumably it's less likely to kind of transcend into audiences that need to hear that message because it's so it's so blatant that it's just about that one thing that that people the only people that go to see it are people who are receptive to that idea already i suppose so although i think a lot of people who program those kind of films are thinking about the content first um and thinking about what kind of messaging or what kind of um stories might resonate with with an audience or might they want their audience to think about um and those don't necessarily match up to um good interesting thoughtful storytelling so I think yeah you just need to 
be doing both, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, of course, you you don't just write about film. Um, I was reading and enjoying uh, your interview with Saul Williams, who I've loved for years now. And um, I wondered what you think the, the fundamental differences uh, are between what people expect from film writing and from music writing. That's a really good question. And I've been thinking about it as well, because I'm about to do a music piece next week and I haven't done any music writing in a little while. So I'm feeling a bit rusty and a bit nervous about it. Um, and I think maybe, and, and you can maybe correct me if I'm wrong, because perhaps this is just my perception or my insecurity coming out, but I feel like in music writing, there's an expectation of technicality and kind of deeper knowledge in a sort of the nerdy sense of it. Whereas in film, I feel like it's perhaps a little bit more forgiving if you are not totally kind of familiar with a canon you can still cogently write about a movie whereas I think if in music writing you don't have lots of existing knowledge it, it maybe shows up more yeah I think that's um, true and, and and also I think to, to an extent I mean this is this is painting with brush broad strokes a bit but I think that 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 music writing does tend more towards the factual whereas film reviews yours in particular and a lot of other film writers I enjoy that the reviewing feels slightly more lyrical a little a little more poetic um whereas I think record reviews people tend that perhaps in some cases there's a bit less art around it if that makes sense <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe, although perhaps not the ones that I like to read. Uh, mm. I, I'm a sucker for a bit of poetry. Mm. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's the technicality that really is, is the main difference in terms of like what's expected of it. Um, but I don't know why that is. Mm. No. Okay. Well, I've, this is exactly why I started this podcast. I can ask people in the future and try and get to the bottom of these things. Um, <laughs> what film, if any, would you hold your hands up and say, I was wrong about this? Um, I'm never wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hear no. that a lot doing this podcast. Um, I don't know, because I don't think about films in that way. I think... When you're when you've been asked to review something, you have to ask yourself whether you responded to it or you didn't. And um, maybe if you watched it again five, ten years down the line, maybe you would respond differently. Um, but I think part of being a, a kind of successful critic is is having instincts that you can trust. And so I've learned to kind of not second guess myself too much and and know that if I if I responded to something and it didn't work for me, there's probably a reason. It's probably um, something about it that that I don't click with or don't connect with or that it's not doing well enough rather than my critical faculties being broken. Mm -hmm. That said, I have been unduly harsh to things before, obviously. Um, And maybe one example is um, Raoul Peck's James Baldwin documentary, I'm Not Your Negro, which I'd seen in a festival setting um, and not really thought much of, and then it was very critically lauded. And I was just like, well, did I miss something? Because this film didn't really do much for me. I love James Baldwin. I'm very familiar with his nonfiction writing, but something about this movie, you know, I just didn't didn't get it. Um, and then I watched it again, maybe six, seven months later, and I liked it a lot more. I still had some problems with it, but um, 
yeah, maybe that's that's an example of something where I've sort of slightly shifted my position. Mm-hmm. And similarly, are there any films looking back that uh, have vindicated an unpopular opinion you had of them at the time? Um, as in, like my uh, my uh, review was harsh, and then um, other people seemed to love it, and then in time, you know. The wider audiences called on it, sort of thing. Yeah, or, or I was thinking, I was imagining the inverse is probably more likely it, a, a film that you really celebrated, but that that other people that didn't underperformed or people didn't really get it, and then perhaps it found a new audience on a DVD release, or or the director went on to to do something bigger that brought more people back to it. Um, I don't know, but may, maybe um a sort of film like that is um Isle of Dogs, the new Wes Anderson film, which. Uh, I'd seen at the Berlin Film Festival and I hadn't really liked it very much. And um, it had quite positive reviews out of Berlin. And then a couple of months later, when it went on general release, um, people were very critical of it. And I had published a piece that was sort of, you know, all, all these pieces came out at the same time, right? But I had I'd written this piece and, and published it. And I think um, it added to a cacophony of voices that were critical of this film when it had previously been celebrated so it was seen to be quite divisive um but i wasn't i certainly wasn't the only person who who didn't really get on with that film I spoke on a previous episode about the Guardian's review of Legend uh, years ago, which was a two-star review, you might remember this, and was then positioned on the film poster to make it look like it was a four-star review that had Oh, I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I wondered uh, whether you'd ever had a review of yours similarly misrepresented on a film's marketing, or or if anyone had ever taken a quote out of context or, or, or that sort of thing. Um, I don't think so, because I don't think I've ever been on a poster quote before. Um, And I think when I write, I know it sounds perhaps a little bit um, of a a brattish thing to say, but I don't, I, I try not to write in ways that sort of generic poster quotes could be pulled from my stuff. Yeah, not giving anyone four words in a row that they can pluck out. Yeah, exactly. Um, because I, I think that's lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe uh, maybe there's a way to do it that's more elegant. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> well, I think I think the the way the way that more elegance could be brought into the situation is perhaps if uh, the people in charge of marketing chose to use quotes a little bit more responsibly. Maybe that's the answer. Yeah, I mean the fun the fun thing when uh, you're reading poster quotes is to look at where they're from because they're always from like random um, kind of magazines or publications that nobody's really heard of. There's always one where you know, it's five stars and it's you know something very sort of praiseworthy, and then you haven't heard of where it's from. Yeah, so. not to mention the trend of uh, uh, probably a year or two ago of just sort of in the absence of oh, good critical people's reviews, tweets. Oh yeah, just throw tweets in. Or 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 worse still, I think I saw some film posters where they literally just taken quotes from members of the public they'd invited to a, a press screening and then just asked them on the way out and used that as if they were all critics, which I thought was, you know, inventive if if misleading. I mean, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. That's all I can say. It makes me laugh. Yeah. But... 
Um, you've got to give them that. Um, uh, on a previous episode, we were talking to to filmmaker and critic Charlie Line, um, where he was saying that he doesn't really see any distinction between the art of making a film and the art of critiquing it. I wondered to what extent you agree where the line, uh, where does the line between artist and critic exist, or or, or does it even? I mean, it's kind of it's interesting that Charlie said that because his films are kind of essay films and and his films particularly deal with um, kind of thinking about other texts in a kind of criticism style way. So I understand why he would say that. Um, and I think he, he must have been kind of talking about his own films and, and that makes sense to me. But generally, I don't think critics are doing the same thing as, as filmmakers. Um, and I don't think uh, film criticism is art. I think good writing can bring you closer to the art. Hopefully, if you're doing it correctly, like it's that's happening. Um, and there can be artistic merit in, in good writing. Um, you only have to read someone like James Baldwin or Hilton Arles to or Gia Tolentino or Doreen St. Felix to kind of see that. But I don't know if the there's if I could put my hand on my heart and say that there's no distinction I'm not I'm not sure I agree with that mm-hmm. do you be putting yourself down on uh, on on forms as critic rather than artist in that case yeah mm. although I still feel like uneasy with with the word critic it, it makes me feel weird um I tend to just say writer or journalist mm-hmm. which I think is um seems less lofty maybe I, I think know. I think critic as well has something of a confrontational edge to it just because of the the semantics of the word criticism being used you know being used for negative as well as kind of neutral writing if that makes yeah. sense yeah yeah um okay um well we're almost we're at the end of the questions but there's a, a part of the podcast that happens at the end of every episode where i basically taken five uh, phrases or, or quotes um some of them are from your reviews some of them are from other people's oh um, no the idea is whether you can tell uh, which is which so uh, oh okay th- there's just five here we go okay um, wish me luck okay so actually also to put you put it in context so far the uh, the range of scores has been i think from two out of five up to five out of five uh your, okay your friend and previous guest laura snape's not only got five out of five but also knew the artist that every quote was about which was astonishing to me <laughs> that, so, that sounds like laura <laughs> no pressure though no pressure um so okay here's the first one the storytelling is elegantly economical characterized by a looseness and a spontaneity that's rooted in authenticity do you think that's, that's me that is you that's you on the fits in little white lies uh number two um, the director reorganizes the original story's non-linear narrative into something cinematic and rich with emotion with a quivering, beating heart at its centre. That's also me. It is, uh, on Moonlight for the BFI. Uh, number three, its visual splendour belies its tough surface-level subject matter while the performances pull us deep below that surface with their soulful naturalism. That's not me. That isn't you. That's uh, Dan Jolin in, uh, from Empire on Moonlight again. Uh, number four, this isn't a buddy movie, but rather a psychological western that breaks and becomes a revenge thriller war movie. Trench warfare and Apocalypse Now references are included in the price of the ticket. Oh, oh, I don't know. I feel like I feel like that could be me. I'm gonna have to press you for an answer. 
Okay, I'm gonna say it's me. It is you. That was uh, okay. that was uh, in the Observer reviewing War for the Planet of the Apes. Okay, um, yeah, that's that's what I thought it was, but I didn't want to say in case it was wrong. Okay, uh, <laughs> and finally, number five. Watch out for a well-placed wink to working girl, though. That's the moment of real fantasy, a universe in which a 20-something woman can usurp her sleazy boss. That's definitely me on uh, Fifty Shades' second one. That's right, yeah. It's you in The Observer on Fifty Shades Darker. There we go, five for five. Wow, there you go. Super. I feel quite smug about that. And so for anyone who wants to catch up with you and, and read uh, more of your writing and see and, and find out kind of what you're, what you're up to next, where's the best place to do that? Um, you should probably just head to my Twitter, which is at heavier underscore things, um, or go on my page on The Guardian, which is just, uh, I don't actually know what the URL is, but if you just Google Simran Hans Guardian, you'll find me there. That's cool. And also, if you're listening to this, uh, then you can head to Twitter at Reads Like a Four, and we'll have, we'll have dug it out and stuck it up there as well. Um, every Friday, we add some kind of extra further reading, so we'll put some, some, uh, some, some more work up there and, and links to some of the things we talked about in the episode as well. Um, <laughs> that's the uh, the end of the quiz and the end of the episode. Thanks very much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. So there we go. My sincere thanks to Simran for joining me this week. If you'd like to catch up with her work, the URL she couldn't remember a couple of seconds ago is theguardian.com slash profile slash Simran dash hands. Or you can go to her website, simranhands.com, where there's examples of previous writing and details of what she's up to as well. Uh, you can join me next week for another episode with a brand new critic. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at readslike a four. Email readslikeafour at gmail.com. Uh, otherwise, I will see you next week with another chat with a brand new critic. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.